Thank God my house burned down. <laughs> I just thought I'd light you up on that one, Bob. Well, you know, today's going to be fun. Uh, this is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast. We have Art Nutter. He's the founder, chairman, CEO of Patent Books and a company called Teus. That's, that's right. And people will go, Patent Books, I got. What is the Teus? Well, Teus, actually, people think it's some sort of Greek god of knowledge. I was going to invent that. But actually, it's an acronym acronym for Take Apart Everything Under the Sun. That company was one I started back in 1992 when United States companies, big companies, were thinking that foreign competition were copying their intellectual property. So I approached AT&T one day and said, hey, you just acquired NCR. Do you know what patents you acquired in that acquisition? They said, no. I said, well, I can tell you and proceeded to do that and turned AT&T and then subsequently IBM into patent licensing powerhouses. IBM went from $100 million licensing income to $2 billion in licensing income over the space of 10 years. You know, I, I think about that. And so, all right, so you started Teus. Yes, I did. Um, Out of the garage. Frequent flyer miles, a laptop computer, and a laser printer. And that was it. Did you have experience in patent anything or taking things apart? Well, yes. I mean, I've always taken things apart. We grew up on a farm. So if we something broke, we had to figure out how to fix it, that kind of thing. And I've just had an inherent interest and curiosity in doing those kind of things. However, the last job I had as an employee before I started Teus, I tended to get fired in most of my companies <laughs> and because I was usually the guy making too much money. That was my crime. And I had doubled the sales of this particular company in a space of nine months. And this company was actually reverse engineering semiconductor memory chips. And I discovered that there was a marketplace that was very interested in this reverse engineering data. And that was this intellectual property marketplace. Because like I said, in the late 80s, early 90s, U.S. companies are thinking, wow, we're getting killed by, you know, foreign competition. They must be copying our stuff, our ideas and our inventions. And in fact, they were. And this was an easy way for them to document the other companies' copying of their circuits. They literally would reverse engineer the circuits and then duplicate them exactly because it was government funded, you know, in Japan and Korea and Taiwan and so forth, they wanted to establish semiconductor industries for themselves, which, as you know from history now, our semiconductor industry is pretty few and far between. You have the Intels and AMDs and, and in-house semiconductor capabilities, but nowhere near like the volume of semiconductor companies that did exist in here in the 1980s. Those businesses are now done in overseas in Asia. You know, I'm thinking about you started out with your laptop in your garage and you yes. made a call to AT&T. Yes. Walk us through the thought process of, you know, I'm going to start small. I'm going to start with AT&T. Well, actually, it was it was very straightforward. There, I only have so many hours in the day. And if I figured that if I'm going to spend my time working with one guy who has one patent or 10 patents or something like that, or I can go to Ma Bell, who has Bell Labs, who has 25 or 50,000 patents, Let's work on those ones. It's like the old Bonnie and Clyde story. It says, why do you rob banks? And he says, because that's where the money is. No, that was Willie Sutton. Oh, was it? Okay. All right, <laughs> but so. you know, Bonnie and yeah, Clyde, yeah, they, yeah, they yeah, caught on right. too. It's the same kind of thing. Why do I go to uh, AT&T? Mm -hmm. It's because that's where they had all the patents. And then I went to IBM too, because in fact, in 1994, not many people know this, but Lou Gerstner had just taken over the company at IBM, and they were down to 30 days worth of cash. 
And IBM hooked up with us and they said, hey, Art, we need you to go through our patent portfolio. And we read every single one of their patents and identified a bunch of patents that other people were using. And once we document that, using that philosophy of taking apart everything under the sun to document the patent infringement, that was all the information that the licensing execs and the patent litigators needed to convince the other side they had to pay. So for you, when you when you do a take apart event, mm-hmm. the take apart event is just not physically disassembling, but it's also understanding the circuit boards and all that other stuff. Well, you have to understand what's going on in the patent language itself. Okay, so you, the language in a patent is at the back side of a patent, and that's what we do when we take a look at a patent. I'll go to the last page of the patent, and I go back from that back page to a paragraph that says, I or we claim, and it's a sentence. So you have to take, this is your seventh grade English teacher, diagramming sentences, Mm -hmm. okay? You diagram that sentence, and you have to find each and every element of what is described in that patent in the target product. So to do that, you have to have the really smartest guys anywhere to find out exactly how you figure out where those elements are in that target product. So we've ended up having to reverse engineer software circuits, you know, an integrated circuit the size of your little fingernail, okay, that has a million transistors on it. You're talking about looking at those things under uh, scanning electron microscopes, tunneling electron microscopes, connecting all the wires, and so that a guy says, oh, yeah, that is the circuit that's described here in that patent. Yes, there's a match. And that's what we do. And so you started in 92. Yes. When did you start bringing on employees and so on? Well, the beauty of the Teus business model is that I have to have the smartest engineering resources in any particular technical discipline. So what I do is I hire thousands, tens of thousands of consultants and contractors, keeping my W-2 fixed staff at a very minimum, because these guys that really know their stuff and that can answer those very difficult questions are super expensive, and I only need them for the right guy. I only need them for probably four to six weeks, then I'm done because I take the information that they are able to discover, map it back to the patents, deliver that report to our client, and that's what they need to consummate a deal. So for the listener out there, he's mm-hmm. going, you know what, I've developed something, I actually patented it, mm-hmm. and I think somebody else is infringing on my patent. Maybe somebody's going like, do I need to retain the service of Teus? So mm-hmm. what does your ideal client look like? Well, the ideal client is somebody who thinks they have an idea that somebody's using it because I can help them. I can go up there and say, okay, let's take a look at this patent. There's a number of different metrics that we use to evaluate the quality of a patent. I don't want to get too much on a soapbox or a rabbit trail on this one, but patents these days are granted for all kinds of different things. And frankly, they're granted very liberally to the point where many of the patents probably should not have been granted, okay? So we take a look at that patent to see, and a couple of metrics, we look at those patents from a legal perspective, an engineering perspective, and a business perspective to see if it's really worth doing. There are patents, I kid you not, IBM patented how to queue up in an airplane to go to the bathroom. I kid you not. These are dumb, dumb patents. Must have been an airplane full of engineers. Probably. Well, some guy, or trying to poke fun at the system, Mm -hmm. okay, just to say that. But Like I said, the ideal client here is somebody who, in my world, is somebody who has tens of thousands of patents. That doesn't constrain us from working for everybody else, but I like spending the time, like I said earlier, with the people who have the large patent portfolios. 
And then we go through their patent portfolio, identify those patents that are most likely to be used by somebody else. And then we, of course, we are skate ranking and scaling those patents to see which ones are the ones that are the most valuable. Because, you know, if you have a patent on something that's commonly used, but lots of other ways to solve that particular problem, unlikely that there's a high probability that when you do that investigation, that you're they're going to see a match because they might have done it some other way. If you, you were looking for those patents, that that's the only way of solving that particular technical problem. And then we're also looking at for those inventions that drive a major cost impact into that product or the value of that product. For instance, in an iPhone or an iPad, you know, the ability to have a virtual keyboard was a game changer because prior to that, you remember back in the old BlackBerry days, you had physical keyboards little tiny things, but those kind of patents are very, very valuable. And then, of course, data compression, streaming video, streaming audio, those kinds of uh, inventions, again, very, very valuable because those allow the internet to work today. So those are the kind of patents that we investigate. And so, Teus, yes. smooth sailing. Not exactly, okay? Teus is, is an adventure, okay? I had to grow through this. I started working when I was seven years old. I'd had various and sundry companies all the way up through my career at the Air Force, my very short career at the Air Force Academy, two years. But then I had been burned in some of those instances by people who stole the checkbook and wrote bad checks all over the town on the company tab. So I didn't allow people to run any of the finance or any of the aspects of this. And I, I started Teus in 92 and about probably 95, 96. We were at $2.5 million a year, and but then I couldn't get much beyond that. I was you know, I kind of plateaued at around 2 to 2.5. took me about five or six years to grow beyond that. And frankly, I fried. I just mentally and physically exhausted. I had to walk away from the thing. I just said, God bless you. Hopefully, I come back and you have a company. And I did, at that point, delegate off the responsibility of running finance, marketing, engineering, and everything to everybody else. When I came back from that six weeks, the company was doing really well, much, much better than it was when I left. And I'm like, hmm, note to self, you should leave more often. <laughs> and, uh, so I actually did. I did successfully delegate that. And sure enough, we went from two and a half million up to five or six million in a year or two. And I'm thinking, hot damn, this is great. But I needed a COO. I had to get, because uh, I'm a decent peddler. I can go out and hustle up some business, and I know how to model the business and so forth. But actually, on the execution side, there are people that do it better than I do. So I had to go through th three different COOs in one year. By the time I got to the uh, third guy, he was a good guy. He put a lot of discipline back into the organization, and sure enough, we grew again, and we're growing like gangbusters. We went up to $10 million in sales and with great profit margins. I mean, we're talking 70% profit margins. So that enabled me to be a sugar daddy around town. And so that was a very, very significant blessing. And But yet there was a calling that we had. Let, before we go too far, let's define exactly the sugar daddy because the connotation's awful. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Business sugar daddy. Big, business. Well, no, I mean, the folks had asked us to contribute to particular causes. You were charitably inclined. Capital campaigns, yeah. those kinds of things. Good. And, Wait, I just want to clear. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, <laughs> uh, that was, I, there's, a, there's a story of the power of prayer there, and I'll get to more of that. But we did make a pledge to St. Mary's High School here in Colorado Springs. They were doing a capital campaign. And they said, how would you like to pay that? And I arbitrarily divided up into uh, three chunks of cash. 
Turned out that was the largest cash donation that's ever been made in the 125-year history of St. Mary's High School. But I didn't know that. I just came up with a number because we'd had a good year. The next year, they asked me to pay, and I didn't have the money because the company almost went out of business the next year. And that's one of those devil things messing with you, you know. And, and I said, look, man, just keep praying. He said, are you bailing on your pledge? I said, no, I'm not bailing the pledge. I just need some, need some prayers. So they prayed. Next year comes around. The company did not go out of business, and it improved. And, and so I was able to make part of the pledge. But then third year, I said, keep praying. The next year, they did keep praying came around and I was able to make good on the entire pledge that third year. So that was cool. So there's a stadium here in town that's named after my mom and dad as a result of that. So that's kind of fun. You know, I, I think about the folks that are listening. So there's a bit of a, an addition past Hayes. Yes. And, and that's, we haven't talked about it yet. Patent books. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about patent books and how that came about and what it's about. Sure. The whole business of Teus is providing information to people to allow them to do efficient patent transactions. Because if I show up and just have a patent and I hand it to you, Bob, and say, you're using my patent, you're going to say, I don't know what I'm using my patent. I'm not going to do this. It contains tens of thousands of patents. Okay. My product does. How do I know your patent's being used? And so the Teus information would document how it's actually being used and then that gets you out of the technical discussion into the business discussion where you have to price that amount, okay? And as long as there's a manageable number of those presentations going on, you can pay the other person on the other side of the table, and it's fine. But when everybody in the world starts getting wind that there's money in those sales, it's a gold rush, more or less, everybody says, wait a minute, I can get money from my patents if I approach this company, that company, and so forth. And that's what happened over the course of the time period from early 1990 into the 2000s. Everybody starts coming out, everybody and their dog starts coming out with patents. And in fact, the big companies began denigrating patent donors by uh, labeling them as patent trolls. Mm -hmm. And that was a completely derogatory and arbitrary designation because frankly, somebody who has an invention that is being used in a product or service that's generating some income is entitled to some compensation. It doesn't matter what you call them. They're entitled to some compensation. You have to figure out how to do that. So deals stopped being transacted across the table with reasonable business people. They almost always were ending up in court. And judges get sick of these things. We had to create an entirely new track within the U.S. judicial system called the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which only handles patent cases. And it was just horrible. In fact, there were cottage industries that were springing up around the country, some eastern district of Texas in Marshall, Texas. There's nothing but tumbleweeds and old unemployed cotton farmers down there. And they, this judge decided he would have a predisposition for plaintiffs in his case, in his, his court. So everybody filed down there. Mm -hmm. And the biggest court cases in the country were filed in the Eastern District of Texas. And, you know, you take a look at this and say, it's wrong. There's something wrong. So along this period of time, I got, I was a beneficiary of a number of miracles. I was in Tokyo and I had twisted my ankle sliding on some snow. It doesn't snow very often in Tokyo. And I was running and sliding and I sheared off all ligaments, connecting my foot to my leg. I said I would never walk again. These are Olympic Training Center doctors here in Colorado Springs said that. And sure enough, I went to church. I'm a Catholic guy and went to Mass. I'm praying to God. Hey, God, I need some help here. Sure enough, the next day, boom. Same doctor said I would never walk again a week before. Said, Art, I've never seen anything like this. You've been completely healed. I'm like, wow, that's cool. 
So I'm like, okay. And I'm a deal guy. So I was praying to God. I said, tell you what, God, you heal me. And I'll tell everybody about this. So I did. I told everybody about this over the next couple of years. That my proclamation of God's intercession there didn't sit well with a lot of people. Okay. But I, 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 I was a deal guy, right? Yeah. He fixed my foot. I'm going to tell the story. Right. And then shortly after that, our oldest daughter, Marissa, became sick with the swine flu in the middle of her, of her second pregnancy. And I don't know if you remember back in October, November of 2009, uh, when that swine flu epidemic came around the world, but 41% of young pregnant moms died. And my, my daughter went from dad, I don't feel too good, to five days later being on life support and airlifted to University Hospital in Denver. I was in Asia. I aborted my trip, came back. She was a science project. And finally, they said, we, after a month in there wow. on this, they said, we have to unplug her. And I'm like, oh, geez, so I got to tell my family about this. That night, we discovered St. Gianna Mola, who's the patron saint of pregnant moms. We prayed to her, and boom, she turned in the hospital that night. Her husband and I went there to unplug her the next morning. The nurses said, don't touch that dial. She responded inexplicably, no change in medication. She walked out of the hospital three days later. And I'm like, okay, I made a deal with God. I said, okay. God, you saved my... I started going to daily mass during that month's period of time. I'm mm -hmm. praying to God, like, hey, what's up? What's up with this? Okay. And I said, hey, look, I'm completely at your disposal, but if you save my daughter, I will go to daily mass forever. And she saved my daughter, so I go to daily mass. And it's a good thing. Keeping the deal. And that's right. That's yeah. right. So anyhow, but shortly after that, people often refer to their, their businesses as a calling. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I got a calling. I'm, I'm literally, I'm sitting in a sauna one night, nobody else around, and I hear this voice that, Art, I need you to make patent transactions more efficient around the globe. There's nobody else in the sauna. I'm thinking, oh, okay, I'm in. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll, I'll, I'm in. But it turns out we had all the elements of making the most efficient patent transaction marketplace out there, and that is we know the spectrum of quality in everybody's patent portfolio, because it's exactly the same, whether you're at IBM or AT&T or Bell Labs or Apple or Samsung, that spectrum of quality is exactly the same. What does spectrum of quality mean? It means the volume of patents within, within the entire portfolio of patents that are really good, okay. the ones that you could use in a litigation and win. All right. Okay. There's a volume of patents a little bit greater than that that you could use in a negotiation. Mm -hmm. But the vast majority of patents in anybody's patent portfolio, upwards of 85%, are commercially insignificant. Mm. Good to know, but not actually being used in a product that's making money. But none of those patents actually make money at all. And most of the time, in fact, if you look at the statistics here in the United States, less than 2% of all patents anywhere in the world actually make money. And that's a horrible shame. And so we created a business model that's very, very similar, compared very favorably to Uber and Airbnb that allows each of these patents to actually make money, and that is the patent book. And so a patent book is a universally available transaction platform that allows a patent owner to publish their patent to a specific patent book for free, they are guaranteed to get income from that because the big companies, these are our traditional customers, the Teus customers, the IBMs, AT&Ts, Microsofts, and the like, the Qualcomms, Intels, and so forth, that are deathly afraid, and actually it's friction in their business for them to get sued for mm -hmm. patent infringement. These companies need to and want to use the latest and greatest ideas and inventions 
But because there's so many of them, it's virtually impossible for anybody to negotiate licenses on a one-off basis with every one of those. In my mind, it'd be like developing a pencil sharpener and you developed it in your barn mm-hmm. and you have a patent. Mm-hmm. And someone on the other coast, unbeknownst, develops yes. the same pencil sharpener mm-hmm. and thinks they have something going on. That's correct. It could happen. Yeah, and just that, the sin of omission, I guess. That, you that, don't even know. Don't even know. That's yeah. right. That's right. And the big companies who, who launch a new product. In fact, there was a joke that I'd heard in general counsel quarters that said they launched this company, a very significant company, launched a new product and they waited. They had a stopwatch going to how long between the launch of their product to the time they got their first lawsuit. It was under 60 minutes. And that's pathetic. Wow. That's pathetic. When our society, this is just a reminder for everyone, a patent is a societal contract between an inventor and the rest of society. It says, Mr. Inventor or Miss Inventor, disclose exactly how you reproduce this invention to us so that anybody who's a person of ordinary skill in the art there can understand what you did and reproduce your invention. And society in exchange gives that person a piece of paper that says, you now own that invention. Thank you for disclosing it. And you now own it for a fixed period of time. Currently that's 20 years. Actually, you know who first came up with that societal construct? China, 3000 years ago which is what allowed Chinese society to grow and develop faster than anybody else because there was incentive in there for people to actually disclose their inventions because when they're in the public domain, anybody can read that and you know, understand it. And for many folks, that, you know, and, and me in particular, mm-hmm. you know, I would have thought, well, you know, I've got this new lathe, I've got this new bolt, I've yeah. got this new screw or yeah. new nail. But it's not just physical. It's process. It can be spreadsheet. It can actually the technical definition of what you can patent is quote unquote anything under the sun invented by man anything under the sun the under the sun phrase just happened to show up in in, in the Teus name <laughs> amazing Take a, well that was pure coincidence pure yeah. coincidence I did not look that up I learned that that was somebody versus Chakrabarty a U.S. patent case well and, you know and for the folks too the valuation of companies has a great deal to do with intellectual property eighty percent of the market value of the standard the S and P five hundred or the Dow Jones is intellectual property. It's not plant property. And so if you're a business owner that has a very proprietary process or you have a spreadsheet that absolutely contributes to your bottom line or Mm -hmm. keeps you from stepping in a ditch, there's a a real thought process you should consider whether you should protect your intellectual property. Well, you should always protect your intellectual property. That is the most valuable asset your company has. Now, many companies don't do a good job of that because they don't understand that. I mean, typical accounting classes just show plant property and equipment and, you know, stuff Mm -hmm. you can show up on a spreadsheet. And yet you take a look at the market cap for publicly traded companies and it greatly exceeds the sum of plant property and equipment. You say, well, what is the delta? That is intellectual property, okay? But now you say, okay, I'm running a a business. I've got a restaurant. I've got uh, this or that. The things that are most important to you are your customer lists the deals you have with your suppliers, who are your suppliers, your recipes, that kind of information is extremely valuable. And that is your company's intellectual property. And you have to secure it appropriately. Otherwise, as we've helped some clients here in town, you know, employees come in and they learn all your systems and processes. They leave. And next thing you know, there's a competitor down the road 
that's being run by that former employee. And it doesn't matter what sort of paperwork you put into place, being in a right-to-work state and those kind of things, they're going to compete. And it's very tough to shut them down. Well, for the folks that are going like, I need to know more. Yes. How do they find you in social media? Oh, well, take a look at us up on Facebook and take a look at me personally and the Taeus Corporation and Patent Books, Inc. pages on LinkedIn. Yeah, and of course, Taeus, T-A-E-U-S. Take apart everything under the sun. Dot, easy way, easy way to remember that. Dot com. Yes, right. Taeus.com. And Patent Books is? Patent Books is PatentBooksInc.com. Right. Okay, I put the I-N-C because there was some other guy that owned the domain for a book about patents. Patent Books is the real evolution of Taeus. Because Taeus is in a world that was supplying arms, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, as an arms dealer of giving people the ammunition to shoot each other in these patent wars, as they were mm -hmm. called. And in fact, patent wars have caused the demise of uh, many a company here in the United States. Mm -hmm. If you remember, year, oh, probably two or three decades ago, there was a company called Polaroid. Mm -hmm. Okay, Polaroid and Kodak got into it on patent stuff. And they just shot each other up. Kodak was wounded, but prevailed. It was a mortal wound for Polaroid. Polaroid never recovered. Mm -hmm. Okay. You take a look at in the last, in the aughts, Samsung and Sharp went at it, patent infringement uh, things and LCD TVs. Both of those companies were world leaders in the marketplace there. That litigation went on for six years. It was started by Sharp, adverse to Samsung. They fought each other. Taeus was involved in that one doing the technical investigations. We were on the Samsung side. And at the end of that, that litigation, when it was all settled out, both of those companies were barely in the top 10. And a dark horse named Vizio came out of nowhere and killed them in the marketplace. And as you know today, Sharp does not exist as an independent company anymore. Sharp was acquired by Han Hai, so Chinese for, company. For patent books, mm -hmm. where is it in the evolution of company right now? Well, it's the very early stages, okay? I thought that with the largesse and profits from Taeus that I would be able to start patent books on its own, but that was one of the dramatic stories of Taeus. I had delegated the management of Taeus to the executive team because I really needed to focus on patent books. The one thing that patent books has going for it is the Taeus and my personal reputation for being honest and trustworthy around the world with all the major corporations. In fact, 93 of the top 100 U.S. patent holders have been our customers. So they trust us. But I had to convert this way of thinking because people are used to going to court and fighting it out in court. I'm saying, no, don't do this. That's the more streamlined process. And a patent book is nothing more than a single location to pay one price, a subscription price, and license all the tens of thousands of patents in that particular technology vertical. And we take that money and distribute it to every single patent owner according to the quality of their patents. Mm -hmm. So everyone gets paid. And so that's a good deal for everybody. There's no downside. So I had to convert this audience that's used to run into court all the time. Mm -hmm. Everybody, my clients, IBM, Google, Apple, they're saying, Art, this changes everything. I said, well, come on, let's go. I need somebody big to lead. They said, oh, no, it's too big for us. Too big. This is Apple and Google saying that it was too big for them. It was blowing me away, Bob, blowing me away. And it nearly cost me everything. Meanwhile... I have this wildly profitable consulting company, Teus, and my employees just thought Nutter's out here doing crazy stuff because I, you know, I'm spending money on these things and it's not getting traction. But in fact, because I heard this voice in the sauna, 
saying, you know, Art, I need you to make patent transactions more efficient around the globe. I'm like, dude, you saved my daughter. You saved my, I'm walking here after I biff my foot. I said, I'm going to do what you tell me to do. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be easy? No. And as it turned out, it wasn't because my executive team at Teus tried to take over the company. They ran the company into the ground by not paying bills. And I was, I didn't know that. I trusted them. And that was one of the learnings. You were missing I had. the other side of that. Verify, right? The verify. Yeah. Oh, boy. That was a hard lesson. I th- wish I'd paid more close attention to President Ronald Reagan when he was watching the communists, you know, but trust but verify on those things. I didn't verify as well as I should. Anyhow, meanwhile, I started getting a little bit of traction at, uh, and this was the interesting thing, Bob. In December of 2015, I filed, I put Teus into Chapter 11 to save it. And that process worked out very well. I had no experience in bankruptcy, but I'm well, very experienced in it now. And we pulled that company out of Chapter 11 two years later. But simultaneous to that, within a week or so, I got a call from Caterpillar out of the clear blue sky. Caterpillar calls up and says, I see what you're doing in this patent book thing. I'm interested in that. I'm thinking, geez, Caterpillar. So I Yeah, small company. Small company. Small company, yeah. Yeah, just out of Midwest, you know, Peoria, yeah, yeah, Illinois. You know. Plays well in Peoria. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, I fly out to Caterpillar, then we sat down and start talking. Turns out they're very interested in doing this in autonomous vehicles. I'm thinking, autonomy. Now that's self-driving cars and all mm. this. Is, yes, there's a lot of interest in here and a lot of a lot of people around the world trying to come up with solutions. Now, as a societal good, self-driving cars would be great because, you know, if you take a look at most of the accidents on the roads these days, it's human error. Mm-hmm. human error. You take the human factor out of it, and theoretically, the uh, volume of accidents and crashes should decrease, okay? And we can make, make our traffic flow much more efficient. But that's going to require tons of people to work together. Caterpillar is a world leader in autonomous vehicles. They've actually been in production for 40 years. Oh, a long time. Long time, okay. Mm -hmm. And these other companies that are carrying the torch of autonomous vehicles like Ford, Chrysler, Google, Apple, and so forth, these guys are getting all the press, but Cat's been doing it for 40 years. Oh, you can see it on their blades when they're doing scrapers on the road. They've got the, the GPS system. That's right. The yeah. little LiDAR thing spinning mm-hmm. around there. Yeah. Well, in fact, and they don't crash. And they, they have to go and navigate their paths where there are no roads. Mm-hmm. And so they know how to do this stuff. And they said, look, we want to contribute our stuff to the rest of the industry in an efficient manner. So they have agreed to publish all of their patents to the Geolocation and Autonomy Patent Book. And I'm now encouraging the rest of the people to follow Caterpillar's lead. And the other thing is they said they would like to access everybody else's technologies. And so they are willing to license it by subscribing to this patent book, which affords all the guys that are doing some little aspect of LIDAR or cameras or, or, or position sensing or something like this that they're really good at, Caterpillar wants to pay, wants to use that stuff so that they can compete as effectively as possible in this brave new world of autonomous vehicles. Because if you take a look at the volume of investment Caterpillar has made in it, while it's hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, it doesn't compare well to $75 billion of investment that everybody else in the world has made. And they said, you know, if we're going to continue to do this, we would just as soon do it efficiently and not have to get stuck in court or get stuck in court, Mm -hmm. you know, if somebody sues them. So when Kat expressed interest, 
Did you have a Me Too event where everybody else says we want to play too? Or are they still dragging their feet? They're heads? still dragging their feet a little bit because I still have to get out there because, again, you know, it took me 25 years to get Taeus up to the position where it is in the thing. I don't have another 25 years in me. I said, all right, because Taeus, by the way, I funded with uh, customer money. We have no outside investors, no outside anything. And, and it was just, so it's nice to be able to run a company like that. However, like I said earlier, I was hoping for the profits from Taeus to fund patent books. And obviously with the distraction of the chapter 11 and so forth like that, the profits kind of went poof. And I kept it on simmer and I had to do it with best I could with my own personal resources. So, you know, we had rentals and I had to sell those and, and I had to rack all my credit cards. And frankly, I haven't had a paycheck in three and a half years. But the thing that kept us going is the faith in God going to mass every single day that allows me to keep focused on this and just keep the faith. And so we started off this discussion. Thank God my house burned down. Well, you know, that's a great segue. We'll get to that. Okay. All right. So with that being said, part of the podcast where I ask you a whole series of questions. Sure. Go ahead. Favorite book. Favorite book, Breakthrough Company. Read that book, and it was about companies that were doing okay, but they wanted to become great. And it kind of bridges the gap between Peter Drucker and uh, Colin's book of Good to Great. It's about guys that had good companies and became fabulous companies. We read that. We did a company-wide book study on that, on using that book. We said, all right, Taeus is good, stable, profitable when it's run there, but let's commit to something big. You know, it's, it's interesting. You know, there's a lot of times where someone said there's a book and I gave it to all my employees, mm-hmm. right? What did your book study look like when you were trying to do that with this book? I mean, did how you, did I physically do the book study? What did you do? Yeah. Oh, I, it was just like a college class. I said, okay, you're, we're going to read chapters two and three here today, and we're going to discuss them and bring in lunch. And we'd discuss them at lunchtime. Okay, who's the notes? And I would assign a different person in the company to lead the dialogue on that set of chapters so that everybody understood. And then we'd say, how does this apply to Taeus? And how does this, how do we look at this mm-hmm. for his patent books? And there are so many good pieces of advice in that Breakthrough Company book that I encourage everybody to employ and deploy. And it was, it was quite successful. Excellent. Okay. Failure, or at the time, an apparent failure that served you or your company best or set you up for future achievement? Well, it was the recognition that Taeus was serving a business that was built on conflict, okay? Qualcomm was one of our big clients. They spent millions of dollars with us, and as we were reverse engineering a couple of their competitors' products, Nokia and Broadcom. And millions of dollars. And we did everything that we did. They settled their litigations. And the business went to zero. Business went to zero. Because our business was built on conflict. And as soon as peace broke out, we didn't have a business. I'm like, oh, geez. The normal state of things is not conflict. Mm -hmm. The normal state of things is peace. And if you have a business that only makes money in conflict, it's an unhealthy business. So I said, let's go look at, at, at a better way. So that's the patent books exists in the peaceful world. If you could put an ad on page one of the local business paper, sharing your message or advice, what would it say and why? Make money from your patents. Publish them to a patent book. It's free. Best allocation of time or initiative that's helped you or your company most? Actually, it's my morning routine. Go to Mass every day. And I go to Mass no matter where I'm at in the world. Being Catholic, it makes it easy because there's Catholic churches all around. I got an app on my phone that says Mass Times. It picks up your GPS coordinates and tells you what Mass Times are there. 
and which is really cool too because I actually you can watch me on Facebook and you get to see the uh, various churches I pop into. Where's Waldo? Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> that's what it is. That's what it is. And a lot of friends of mine just they're like, "Art, I saw you were in London last week," you know, yeah. that kind of thing. But it's it's actually kind of cool. The messages that come forth in the Gospels, I mean, this is not new. I don't feel like I have an unfair advantage over many of my contemporaries because I listen to the Word of God. But, dude, he's been around for a long time, and he's the message is open to everybody. But the fact is, so many people don't pay attention to it, and it's right there. And no so I find that the, the, the things I hear in the daily readings, there's something in there that I can use every single day, whether it's dealing with a personnel issue, a customer issue, an accounting or finance issue, doesn't matter. Something is useful in there every single day. In fact, today I was at Mass, and so oftentimes in my home parish, I get asked to come and do the responsorial psalm. And there was a guy years ago who would do the responsorial psalm, and he would sing the responsorial. There's no music or anything mm-hmm. like that that's written there. I used to direct the choir years ago and all that. But I mean, today, the uh, responsorial psalm was, Those who are victorious, I will feed from the tree of life. And these are just tunes. You look, you see the, see this, and it says, He is like a tree planted near running water that yields its fruit in due season and whose leaves never fade. Whatever he does prospers. Those who are victorious, I will feed from the tree of life. You know, it's that kind of stuff. So you kind of get motivated from this stuff. It's like, okay, do trees near running water always have a good time? No. Sometimes wind comes by and thrashes them and so forth. I felt like I've been thrashed once or twice. But uh, it eventually yields fruit in due season. I'm hoping the patent books will do that. You know the image that comes to my mind on a train ride from Anchorage up to Denali. Yeah, I've along, watched the train as I've been fishing in the rivers. Well, yeah. along the riverbank and the ice break up, if you uh-huh. look at the trees along the river, yes, they get hammered. Yes, they do. Bent over and all that. Knocks the bark off, breaks them in yep. half. So, yeah, being next to the river has its pluses and minuses depending on where you are. True, but they're still alive. Yep. And they yield its fruit in due season. Most unusual habit or what others may consider out of the ordinary that's helped you most? Well, probably going to Mass. Not too many people do that every day. I mean, what's been inspiring to me is I get up and do commercials for capital campaigns and so forth Mm -hmm. at the church. And I try to point out to people the most important people in any given capital campaign are the little old blue-haired ladies that are over there praying every single day. It's not, you know, the guys that are making the money are useful and all that, but those ladies that are praying all the time, those are the people. And frankly, I became one of them. I'm not a blue-haired lady, but I'm a bald-headed guy. Well, but, yeah. uh, you know, but, but I'm in there praying, and, and it does seem to help. You know, over the past three years, belief or protocol that you've established in the company that's most impacted your company? Faith. Stick with it. Just stick with it, okay? Do it with your eyes wide open. Don't cower. Don't duck your head. Keep your eyes wide open. Look beyond the current problem and keep going for the big opportunities. Do, don't swing for the fences all the time. Do not deal with little things and don't let little things distract you. Advice you'd offer to a new CEO that's assuming the role of CEO for the first time? Look what you want to do five, 10 years from now. What impact should your company make on the world to make it a better place? Because every business should make an impact on the world. Otherwise, it'll, it'll just fizzle out and die. Most common misconceptions about you or your role as CEO? That I know everything, That I because I don't know everything. 
I have major weaknesses and blind spots in finance and even the things that I say I'm good at, even sales and marketing, those kind of things, I'm learning all the time. Got to learn all the time. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're kidding yourself. Anytime you think you know everything, you'll be blindsided. Over the past few years, what would or should you have said no to and why? I will tell you this. There is an investment that was made by a company out of the UK into patent books. It's a $100 million investment that everybody, all my peers, my board of directors, everybody's telling me that that was a dumb thing to accept. Okay. Because here we are a year, nearly a year later, and the money has not yet shown in my bank account. And it was one where I had to put up a bunch of money to make this thing happen. Everybody has told me that that was a dumb thing to do. I remain the sole person who says, no, this is a fine thing to do, and it will happen as it was originally described. So while the rest of the world thinks that I'm wrong on this one, I don't think I'm wrong. And so that's a different way of answering your question, but sometimes I'm stubborn like that. It happens. Yeah. My wife says the same things, too. (laughs) (laughs) In the day-to-day operation of your company as CEO, personal habit or self-talk that keeps you and the company focused? Well, like I said, going to mass. Going to mass. Going to mass. Bar none. That's the one. A quote that you like to use or one that's meaningful? Oh, this is one I got for my duly years at the Air Force Academy. George S. Patton. He says, never tell somebody how to do something. Tell them what to do, and they will amaze you with their ingenuity. And I find that to be true across the board. So I talk to my web guys, you know, I say, I need to have a web page that does this and this and this, and that's what to do. And I let them figure out the best way to do Mm -hmm. it operationally as I'm adding personnel, you know, the organizational structure and the corporate organization. These are things that we have to pay attention to as we navigate the world of international law, international tax, and so forth. Because, in fact, my customer base is, in fact, global, certainly not isolated to Colorado Springs. In fact, I'm hard-pressed to think of any customers I have in here in Colorado Springs, much less the state. But they are an international customer base. So got to pay attention to all those things. If I was to talk to colleagues and ask them what you're best at, what would they say and how to utilize that strength on a day-to-day? Sales. Sales. These people say I can sell things to, like, ice cubes to Eskimos, that kind of thing. I don't know that I do that necessarily. What I say is I try to listen, and I try to listen to people's problems and then help them solve their problems. My wife will iterate that as well. She says I fix things. Fix she it. finds things, I fix things. All right, we got to circle back around. Thank God my house burned down. <laughs> Let's circle back and finish up with that story. Sure. Well, as I told you, Teus went into hard times, Chapter 11. I stopped taking a paycheck back in July of 2015. I had to keep Teus going. Thank God my kids, who had grown up with Teus, stepped up and said, look, Dad, we'll help. And so chips off the old block. I had some guys, uh, sons, step up in sales. My daughter, who was captain in the U.S. Army, had discharged from there. She had good managerial skills. She comes in in operations. But the company still wasn't making money. My former employees had gone out and actively tried to discourage people from doing business with Teus. They said, oh, Teus doesn't have any engineers. They don't have it. just nutters, kids. Uh, you know, what they didn't know is they poked this bear and yep. we'd make sure that we did it. Anyhow, long story short, I'm out of money. I maxed out on credit cards. I mean, this was this past June, June 2018. I'm out of money. 
my utility shut off notices. The red paper comes in now, says you will be shut off on such and such date. I had no money to by which to pay the mortgage that month and all my credit cards are maxed. I couldn't rob Paul to pay Peter because there was nobody else to rob. I'm like, so I'm, I go to Eucharistic Adoration three o'clock in the morning, just me and God. And I'm talking to God. Three o'clock in the morning. Three o'clock in the morning. Yes. I didn't even know they were open that early. They're 24-7. Oh, 24/7. so. 24-7. Yeah. Yeah. There's a code on the door. You punch yeah. in the code and you go in there. And it's really nice because it's just me and Jesus just sitting there talking and real close, real intimate. And I'm saying, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. But okay, actually, I have this ranch in Southern California, Southern Colorado, I'm sorry. And it's a hundred and some odd acres, beautiful house, executive retreat. I figured all this other stuff in Colorado Springs can go in hell in the handbasket. I still have that rest. got them completely in your hands. I leave that. I have an event with Caterpillar on the line. And other people are coming on with, with patent books. Nobody's signed yet, but I'm out of money. What am I going to do? My house burned down that day. The spring fire came through. I went down there on the 28th of June, and the house burned completely to the ground. I'm like, oh, no. I have no safety net. I have nothing now. Got him completely at your disposal. I kept going back to adoration, though. And that was the turnaround. That was a turning point. When I had to put myself entirely in our Lord's hands because there was nothing I could do, and I'm kind of a power and control guy, nothing. I had no power or control over anything. He says, I got you. On July 18th, Caterpillar signed. And towards the end of July, we got a $1 million check from the insurance company for that. And that allowed me to pay off the credit cards, in fact, I just checked my credit rating before I came down here. My credit rating is in the 800s now, okay? <laughs> when it was down in the low 600s, you know, bouncing around the 500s around mm-hmm. there. And and it was just because I was able to pay off everything that put money into all the accounts. The Taeus business, the kids have finally gotten a good traction in here now. They're knocking down in the neighborhood of $150,000, $200,000 a month, okay? Good profit margins. Again, we're paying back all the creditors. And we've got a little bit of uh, money now to go out and push patent books even further. I was able to buy airplane tickets to London last week. I took our investors to task. I said, now everybody's telling me that you guys are flakes and I'm looking you in the eye and saying, you're not flakes. Make sure you make me honest on this one. They said, we're coming through, we're coming through. So they reemphasized and reiterated that they are there. And on Friday last week, I was in Dublin Dublin, Ireland. I met with the heads of the European Patent Office, the European Patent Academy, and the Licensing Executive Society of UK and Ireland. And they said, Art Patent Books is the Uber and the Airbnb of patents because we are indeed taking every single patent, providing an opportunity for every single patent, like everybody who has a car sitting in the garage and anybody who has spare rooms in their house being able to put those into the marketplace and find a buyer for those. And we're doing that in the world of patents, which we think will enable more inventors because they get compensated for their inventions via their patents to invent more. And the innovators, when they know that they won't be sued for using other people's ideas and inventions, that they'll innovate more and will have more frequent product generations, shorter design cycles, I think this will be the economic stimulus that the world truly needs. Well, that's a great wrap-up to a story. Well, Art, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming in and sharing your story and your wisdom and your faith. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. It's a blessing to be here. You bet.